Good morning, New Life. It is such an honor to be able to be here with you, to pitch it for Pastor Devin and, and Jenny as they are away on vacation. Uh, you folks are blessed. I think you know that already. And uh, be sure to lift them up in prayer as that God would refresh them and, and touch them. Unfortunately, I'm traveling solo this weekend, so Lisa and the kids are not with me. You, you saw a few of the representation of the, of the crew in the picture there. At least in the video, let me encourage you to grab one of our prayer cards in the foyer. If you're watching online, you can connect with us at theturneys.org. But uh, grab one of those prayer cards. Now, let me clue you in. This is misleading. As Jeff said, we have six kids, and so there's only four pictured here. Our two adult, adult children are not in that picture. So you, uh, you don't get to see the full crew. If you go to Facebook, you can see the rest of, of the crew that are there. I was doing some ministry in northern Thailand, <clears throat> and a lady asked me about my family. And when I told her I had six kids, she gasped and said, six kids, how many wives do you have? I was a little taken aback. <laughs> I responded, well, just one. And then she retorted, well, is she still living? I said, the last time I checked, she's a pretty tough lady. We've had the joy of serving as missionaries in Asia Pacific since the mid-1990s. As you saw in the video, first in Thailand and then a collection of countries as we worked throughout the Asia Pacific areas with compassion type projects, children's homes, feeding proje projects, schools, and medical care, seeing God do some dramatic things in the lives of kids and working in church planning and impoverished communities that are there. And now God has us on this crazy new trajectory headed to New Zealand. Anybody ever been surprised by God before? Well, he surprised us. Because all of our ministry has been in the undeveloped world. And then uh, God began to open doors to our surprise in New Zealand. We had never previously been to that part of Asia Pacific. had never been to Australia. And then as God began to open doors of ministry, we began to engage there. And now he is leading us really sovereignly to, to go to the largest city, Auckland, 1.6 million. Nationwide, 5 million people just to plant a new church. We'll be the first Assemblies of God World Missionaries to be assigned there to go in and, and see God do what he does best, transform lives. Just establish a new community of Christ, a new beachhead on the battlefront. You know, prior to New Zealand to going there and having some ministry engagement, all I knew about the country was that it was a land of beautiful scenery. How many like to go there for vacation? Well known for majestic mountains, lovely coastline, fjords. If you're Lord of the Rings fans where they did the filming there, you know, go find Gandalf and storm the gates of Mordor. If you're a token, want to do the token pilgrimage. That's all that we knew prior, just that it was a land of beautiful scenery. We had no context of what, was like, what it was like in the country. And when we, when we got there and began to have short-term ministry engagement, we didn't divide, it's a land of beautiful scenery, no question about that. But in stark contrast to that, it is also a land of barren spirituality. It is very similar to Europe. In fact, 60% are of European descent. It was a British colony until about 1947. And it is follow Europe and the UK and its same spiritual trajectory where Christianity was prominent in their past, but today secular atheism is the dominant driving ideology of that society. Now we know that philosophy attempts to extract God out of the equation of life, but how many know that doesn't work very well? God has designed us to be in relationship with him, and whenever you sever yourself from the source of life, there's a high price to pay. We see that in New Zealand, they have very high rates of alcoholism and substance abuse. You self-medicate. Of developed nations, they are ranked number one 
for domestic and sexual violence. And of developed nations, they have one of the highest teen suicide rates, twice that of the United States statistically. So you can be surrounded by beautiful views and vistas, but we know it will never fill the God-sized void in your heart. But friends, God is still stepping down into broken humanity to bring healing, hope, and restoration. Can you say amen to that? God's work of redemption, God's work of salvation is still vibrant and active today. We've had the joy of over our two plus decades of ministry in Asia Pacific to see really some very dramatic, life-changing work. Uh, Families like Garde. We were working on the southern island of Mindanao with the plans of planting a church in this very poverty-stricken, impoverished community. But the first engagement with the community was a nutrition project to provide some care for the children of that community, to build some relationships and minister to the parents. And Garda and his family were a part of this community, and their lives were just coming apart at the seams. And the reason for their dysfunction, the reason for their brokenness, was that Garda was a drug addict. Any money that he acquired, he would squander in his substance abuse, and it was just laying waste in his family. His, his wife, hopeless and despondent, his kids severely malnourished, really at a life-threatening critical point. When Gardy's wife heard about the nutrition project that we were working with in the community as a precursor to the church plant, she thought maybe this would be some answers to the solutions, some solutions to the problems that they were facing. And so she brought their two young kids to the center. And the way the project worked was five days a week, usually at the meal time, uh, the noontime, kids would receive a nourishing meal. There was a nurse on site. Medical care would be provided, uh, vitamins. There would be health classes for the parents, activities for the kids. But more importantly, the parents and the kids would hear about God's love and God's message of hope, message of hope and salvation. And when Gardy's wife brought her kids in, they began to participate in the program and the, and the ministry engagement there. And as she began to witness over a period of weeks a physical transformation taking place in her kids' lives as God began to restore them back to health, her heart just opened. And as she heard about God's love and God's forgiveness, she surrendered her life to Christ, and God began to change their trajectory. Gardy began to see this dramatic change in his family. With his kids, he could, he could see the physical transformation. With his wife, something else was going on. He didn't understand it, but he knew there was something dramatic taking place. And out of curiosity, he began to attend some of the meetings. And while he was there and he heard about God's forgiveness and God's transformational power, he surrendered his life to Christ. And it doesn't always happen this way, but when he placed his faith in the Lord, God miraculously, instantaneously delivered him of his drug addiction. And today, Gardy and his family are members of that local church and powerful testimonies in their community of God's transformational power. Because for them, the Holy Spirit brought healing to their hearts, their health, and their home. He took those fractured, broken pieces and he mended them back together through the miraculous healing work of the Holy Spirit. Marge and his mother, another wonderful example, we were uh, working on the island of Java in Indonesia in a large urban city and another impoverished community providing care for some unnourished kids and outreaches for the youth and parents. And Marge and his mother were part of this community, and this particular community economically was really at the lowest tier. The land that they had chosen to erect their 
their slum homes out of recycled cardboard and tin and lumber when they could find them was an abandoned cemetery that had been discarded because of superstition and even demonic activity. But out of desperation, individuals began to build their homes there and a rather sizable community began to develop. And as we were working with some ministry engagement there, Marge and his mother were part of this community. Marge's mother was a prostitute. That was the only way that she could put food on the table to provide some level of subsistence existence. But as the ministry was taking place, Marge and his mother began to participate and engage, and they surrendered their hearts to Christ, and God began to change the landscape of their lives. Marge's mother began, began to find better employment as God began to bless. They became a part of their local church there, and educational opportunities became available for Marge through scholarships. He had never attended school before. He attended elementary school. He did well, and God continued to provide into high school through scholarships and then even into college. And today, Maraja is a university graduate with a law degree and a powerful, influential member in the predominant Islamic community of God's miraculous transformational work. That even in a cemetery, for a family that was surrounded by death, physical, spiritual death, God stepped on the scene and breathed life and transformation. That's what God does and is doing. Stepping down into broken humanity to put those broken pieces back together. Why? Because of his love. Because of his heart for lost, broken humanity. Jesus really unpacks this for us in a very dramatic way in Luke 15 in a very kind of lengthy, extensive teaching session. In fact, let me invite you to take your Bibles with me. And let's turn here to this, I imagine, a familiar passage of Scripture to you. As you turn there, you might immediately recognize that in this chapter there contains three familiar parables. In fact, the entire chapter is... One parable after another as Jesus gives us one seamless ongoing teaching session to unpack for that audience and for us the depth and the breadth of God's love for lost, broken humanity. Now just to refresh our memories here, let's look at verses 1 and 2 where Luke sets the stage in the scene. Reading out of the ESV, Luke says, Now the tax collectors... And sinners were all drawing near to hear him, speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right out of the gate, we see there is this clash of perspectives regarding value, difference of opinions. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those respected individuals of that Jewish community, those religious leaders, the social elite, they were shocked and stunned that Jesus would sully his reputation by spending time in fellowship and even extending friendship to these social outcasts, the tax collectors. Those of the Jewish community that have been employed by Rome, despised the Roman Empire, and were 
the ones that were collecting the heavy-handed abusive taxes in their community and were even known through embezzlement to enrich themselves, these weren't popular people. The sinners, those of the community whose immoral activity was public knowledge, these were the individuals that they gossiped about. And that Jesus would give them his time and attention, the Pharisees and scribes, they were stunned. They're speechless. They were experts in God's law, but shockingly ignorant of God's love. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to then launch into this teaching session where he shares these three probably familiar parables to you. But let's take a few moments this morning just to refresh our memories here. Let's read the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. In verse number three, Jesus said, So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that, I, that was lost. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's go ahead and read the next parable because it's a parallel parable, the parable of the lost coin, beginning in verse 8. Jesus says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not Light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, how many of you have ever lost something? Anybody ever lose your keys, your wallets, your kids, your mind? If you have kids, you probably lost your mind a time or two. It's common human experience. Now, rather interesting, a little bit on a side note, we noticed that Jesus affirms something that we ourselves have observed over the years. That is that at times, men and women process information differently. How many discovered that to be true? Husbands, wives? You'll notice that these are parallel parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. With the first parable, he talks to the men. He says, and what man? He begins to unpack that story. And then he then reframes it to resonate with the ladies. He then begins to talk about the coin for the women. Fascinating. Because at times, you know, men and women just process information differently. For example, uh, our, our daughter, our oldest, uh, and our son-in-law, after our granddaughter's first birthday, had this, had this great birthday celebration. How many grandparents here this morning? We just had our second two weeks ago, another two notches on the belt. Pretty excited to be a member of the Grandparents Club. I'm still a little nervous about the annual fees, but other than that, I'm still happy to be a member. But after our, our, our granddaughter, our first grandchild's first birthday, 
where our daughter and son-in-law had this big celebration, friends and family over to celebrate Daphne's birthday. Lisa and I are talking, and Lisa asked me, she goes, what did you think about the decorations around the refreshment table? Weren't they just elaborate and beautiful? And as she asked me that question, she observed the blank look on my face. And she followed up a little bit in disbelief. Didn't you notice the decorations around the refreshment table? To which I responded, I noticed the refreshment table. (laughs) For her, what captured her attention were the elaborate decorations. For me, I can't help it. It was the food. Some chemical reaction with the testosterone. Everything kind of blurs into background bokeh and tunnel vision targets the delicacies. So significant is what Jesus is wanting to communicate that he takes the extra effort and the time to first communicate with the men and then to reframe it to resonate with the women. Fascinating. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find him doing this. Maybe he did, but it's not recorded. And so both of these parables are parallel parables, so many similarities. An item lost, a sheep, a coin. The response, the shepherd goes out searching. The woman begins to sweep and search diligently in the house. You notice that in both stories, the search continues until the animal or the coin are found. Then the response, the individual celebration, the rejoicing, and then the calling together of the friends and and neighbors to have a corporate celebration. And then the connection that Jesus makes to try and communicate to help us comprehend this is heaven's perspective on us, on lost, broken humanity. Now, we've already acknowledged this is a common human experience of losing things. Many times when we lose something, it's an irritation, it's inconvenience, but that's about as far as it goes. A pair of gloves, an umbrella. We're not happy, but as we go about our daily activity, you know, we'll casually look around, but if we don't find it, we're going to put it on the shopping list, and next time we're at the store, we're going to replace it. But there are other items, when we lose them, it's a totally different story. You get that hollow feeling in the gut. You break out in that cold sweat. Your mind begins to panic and race. You'll spend hours tearing the house apart, retracing your steps, thinking every conceivable place it might have slipped out of your grasp. A wedding ring. A check of sizable amount. An heirloom item passed down from generations that has significant sentimental value. Have you ever lost something like that before? The value of the item drives the diligence and the desperation of the search. For that audience, they knew the value of that sheep in that agrarian society. The women understood the value of that coin, the implications it would have on a woman's future security and well-being. And then the stunning revelation that this is the Father's perspective on us. The one that spun the stars into existence, the one that created all that we know and that we see, when he looks down upon his creation, We are the object of his affection. Is that not stunning? 
We are what he places the highest price tag upon. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little hard to wrap my head around. Beyond our comprehension. And sometimes we fall into the trap of the Pharisees and the scribes that we read about at the very beginning of the chapter. We think about individuals or even groups of individuals because of their actions or even atrocities, and we think, surely that doesn't mean them. Surely they've been disqualified. Or maybe we wake up in the morning, and as we look at ourselves in the mirror and we reflect upon our own missteps in life, our own mistakes, we might think, surely that doesn't mean me. And to address this misperception, Jesus immediately launches into the third parable in the seamless teaching session. The parable of the lost son. Or many times we call it the prodigal son. One of the most familiar stories in, in the Gospels. You probably remember how the story goes as Jesus tells it. There were two sons. The younger comes to the father asking for his inheritance. Basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. All I care about is your money. He then proceeds to take that large sum of money, as Jesus tells the story, goes off to a far distant land, spends every dollar, every dime. He's penniless. In fact, Jesus gives us this picture in your translation in verses 13 and 14, depending on your translation, it says, through wild and riotous living. Basically indicating this young man, he throws off all moral restraint. He discards all of his, his guidance and upbringing of his family and society in his pursuits of pleasure and passion. And then he finds himself destitute financially. And then as Jesus tells a story, a famine strikes the land. And out of desperation, he hires on, you probably remember, to a farm as a hand, tending pigs, wanting to eat the food that's offered to them. This shocking riches to rag story. From prosperity to poverty. From being part of the elect to an outcast. This young man has hit rock bottom. Now, in the first two parables, you know, the sheep was lost out of animal ignorance. The coin was misplaced unintentionally. But this young man's actions have been planned and executed. He's in this condition, not because of a series of unfortunate events outside of his control. He's there because of his own poor choices. And to communicate just how far this young man has fallen, Jesus brings in pigs. Now, you're probably familiar or aware that in the Jewish community, you know, pigs are the most despised of all the unclean animals, of all the unkosher animals. In Old Testament teaching, forbidden to eat them, and even rabbinic teaching, forbidden to tend them. And so for him to be in this condition, in this employment, was shocking to, his, to the audience that Jesus was communicating to. Now, for me personally, you know, thanks to bacon and pork chops, I have no ill feeling toward that ugly animal. 
For me, on a culinary plate, he rates 10 out of 10. But in Jesus' day, this was scandalous. And then Jesus then turns it into this amazing story of redemption and restoration that we probably know well. You probably remember that the young man comes to his senses thinking, hey, maybe I'll go home and hire on as a hand. And let's pick up the story in verse number 20. It says, and he, the younger son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Immediate reinstatement right in, back into the family. Complete forgiveness given. Stunning. Where Jesus communicates that even in our wanderings, as misguided as they may be, we can never walk beyond the boundaries of God's love. Can you say amen to that? Now what's amazing is as we look at these, these parables consecutively as Jesus shares them in one seamless teaching session, we see that Jesus is moving with intent and progression from one to the next. He starts with one of a hundred sheep, then he moves to one of ten coins, then he concludes with one of two sons. And as the ratio diminishes, the dynamic message, the intensity of it just increases. And in each of the stories, the focus is always one. So much concern, so much effort for one. God really drove this point home to us back in the mid-1990s when we began working as brand new missionaries in Thailand. We had just arrived in Bangkok, the capital city, a large metropolis of at the time about 15 million people, just on the ground a couple of days. Some missionary colleagues of ours invited us to stay in a, in a spare bedroom they had in their apartment while we were getting settled into the city. And I was traveling down this particular day, just a few days after we arrived, I was traveling down into the heart of the city where I was going to register us for language school. So we would have the tools, the language skills to be able to begin to share the love of God with the Thai people. We didn't have a vehicle yet, and so I was using the, the public, public transportation options that are there. They have a whole collection from buses to taxis to motorcycles to even boats. And I had made it down to the language school and I was on my way back, traveling back to get back to the apartment of our missionary friends, sitting on this public unair conditioned bus, this bench seat, and had this big paper map out in front of me. How many remember those paper map days? 
I know you got to go to a museum now to find them, you know, but big paper map out, big city, navigating my way. And I felt somebody slip up next to me on the, on the seat, in the bus seat, and asked me in excellent English, which got my attention, are you lost? And I looked over, and it was this Thai gentleman in his early, mid-30s. He introduced himself as City Pong. We talked for a few minutes, and I could see that my stop was coming up, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get off in just a minute. He goes, well, can I have your phone number? I said, sure. So I jotted down the phone number of the missionary friends we were staying with, you know, back in the day when telephones were attached to the wall. Remember those days? Paper maps back in the wagon train days. And I gave him that number, got off the bus, went on my way. Really didn't think much about the meeting. A couple weeks went by. We got settled into the city and found our own apartment that we'd be living in while we were in language school, which we had started getting acclimated to the life and routine for that we would be uh, living for the next few months and time in Bangkok. And our missionary friends that we'd stayed with there for those first few days invited us back over to their house for a meal, for dinner, and some fellowship. And we're sitting around their living room just laughing, talking, having a great time when the telephone rang. And to my surprise, my missionary colleague said, hey, Nate, it's for you. I remember thinking as I picked up that receiver, I don't know anybody in this city. And as you guessed, it was City Pong. We talked a little bit on the phone, and he asked if we could meet. So a couple days later, I found myself back down in the heart of Bangkok, sitting across from City Pong, in this little roadside Thai cafe, eating this hot, spicy Thai soup. Now, friends, I don't know what all is going to be on the menu at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's some Thai food there. Anybody like Thai cuisine? It is superb. Now, I will warn you, they do like peppers. So sometimes some of the dishes you eat, it's like a brush fire goes through your taste buds. But after they grow back a couple weeks later, it starts to taste pretty good. So I'm sitting across from City Pong, this little roadside tag cafe, eating this hot, spicy soup. My curiosity got the better of me, and I asked him, I said, City Pong, why did you call? He said, a couple of nights before I telephoned you, I had a very disturbing dream. I was out in the Gulf of Thailand, out in the ocean, in this little bitty boat, and a violent storm was brewing. The wind was blowing so strong, the waves were crashing. I felt at any moment the boat would capsize and that my life would be lost, and I was gripped with such fear. And for some reason, I don't know why, but in my dream, your name came back to me, and I was calling out your name, and when I woke up, I knew I had to give you a call. And when he recounted his dream to me, boy, the Holy Spirit just stirred in my heart. I said, you know, City Pong, when we met on that bus a few weeks back, it was not by chance. But rather, God in heaven, our Creator, set up a divine appointment that we might meet so that I could share one very important thing with you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you that you might be restored to Him. In a city of 15 million people, 
using somebody at the time who could speak but just a few words of Thai, God set up a divine appointment for one. For one. And somehow God is able to look at the mass of humanity around our globe, whether it be Bangkok, Thailand, whether it be Auckland, New Zealand, whether it be Kokomo, Indiana, God sees one. Nowhere else in the Gospels will you find these parables recorded except in Matthew 18 you'll find the parable of the lost sheep. And Matthew concludes that parable in verse 14 with Jesus saying, My Father in heaven is not willing that one, that one should be lost. The depth and the breadth of God's love beyond our comprehension. And when we reflect upon the cross and what Christ did for us, the price that he paid on Calvary's tree, we recognize there was no price too high to pay or too high that he was willing to pay for us to be restored and redeemed back in fellowship and relationship with our Father. Jesus shares these parables so that we might get a little bit of understanding regarding how great God's love is. We can never fully comprehend it. It's beyond our understanding. The depth's too great for our mind to grasp. But even though we may not understand it, friends, can I tell you, we can embrace it. Can you say amen to that? Like that younger son, even in our broken, devastated condition, as we ask for forgiveness, we can walk back into the arms of the Father as we place our faith and trust in Christ. He wraps those arms of love around us, immediately reinstating us and restoring us right back into the family as a child an heir. And Jesus shares these powerful parables that we might embrace the Father's love. But amazingly, you probably remember that Jesus doesn't conclude the story with that amazing reunion of the father and the younger son. They've been a great place. The party begins, the celebration begins sets off and all of a sudden Jesus then moves on to another teaching session but no you probably remember that there's a little more to this story eight more verses in fact rather surprisingly Jesus brings the older brother back onto the stage and when he steps into the scene you might remember that he's not too happy about the development he's shocked and stunned this younger brother of his who's squander the family resources, who's brought shame to the family name, has now been reinstated and, and restored as a son, as an heir. This doesn't seem right to him. And Jesus concludes the parable in verse 32 with the father pleading with the older brother to embrace the son who was lost and is now found. 
You see, the older brother was a part of the family, but he didn't have the heart of the father. And before I'm too judgmental, because of the pressures of life and the distractions that I face, that we all face, I see how easy it is for all of us to fall into that same trap where we can be a part of the family of God, but not always have the heart of God. Are you with me? Jesus shares these powerful parables, not only that we might embrace God's love, but he shares them so that we might echo his love. So that our hearts, through the work of the Holy Spirit, might be aligned with the Father's heart. So that what is priceless to heaven becomes precious to us. Amen. Because not only do we get to experience God's love as he rescues us out of the brokenness of life, out of sin, out of devastation, out of death, and restore us back to the family. Not only do we get to be rescued, but God then allows us to be a part of the rescue mission. Amen. God allows us to be a part of casting out the lifeline to those around us and those around the globe that they might also experience God's love and forgiveness and work of restoration. God allows us through our own testimony to share with those around us. Friends, can I tell you that one of the greatest tools of transformation, one of the most effective tools of the gospel is our testimony, amen? What God has done in us, our work of forgiveness that we have received, the work of forgiveness that we've experienced, God's healing that is done in our bodies, God's financial provision as we interact with those around us and we become aware of the needs. Friends, it just takes a little bit of boldness. We have to step out and say, you know, let me share what God has done in my life. Let's pray that God would do the same in yours. But the amazing thing is we are not prisoners of our proximity, but God allows us to even through our prayers and our giving to travel to lands that our feet may never touch. God allows us to have a global impact, a worldwide reach. I think one of the greatest mistakes we make as believers is underestimating how great God wants to use us for the work of the kingdom. Would you agree with me, friends? We sell ourselves short how effective we can be in the hands of the Creator to share His message of love and salvation to those around us and those around the globe. If I could invite the worship team to join me on the platform. Let me share with you the story of Jerry, one young man that we had, the, another young man we had the joy of being a part of his journey of faith. We were working in the, we were working in the central islands of the Philippines called the Visayas. On the island of Cebu, a large city, with another impoverished community where we were involved with some youth outreach and some ministry to the Mount Earth kids. And once again, the plan was to plant a church. And Jerry was a part of this slum community. 
that we were working in. And like many of his teen peers, Jerry was on the same path of self-destruction. To deal with the hopelessness of his situation, the bleakness of his future, like his friends around him, he began to experiment with drugs and other substance abuse to numb the pain and hurt of his heart. But Jerry began to attend some of the youth outreach activities. And as he was in those meetings, his heart was captivated by the love of Christ and he surrendered his life to God and God began to change his trajectory. Jerry became a part of the, of the believers there of the church. He got discipled, grew in the Lord. He graduated high school. He felt God call him to full-time vocational ministry. It was beyond financially his ability to attend the local Bible school, but through God's provision, we were able to find a scholarship for him to attend the local Bible school, which he did for four years. He excelled, gaining ministry training. He graduated with honors. And today, Jerry leads the very ministry that led him to Christ. Amazing story of God's transformational power. And he's working in his community that knows his story before and after God's work of redemption. If you ask Jerry why he attended, if you ask him to think back to his teen years, why he attended and started attending some of those youth activities, you know what he would tell you? He would tell you he went for the free snacks. The free snacks. That's what drew him in. Friends, can I tell you, if God can use chips, cookies, and crackers, I mean, no, God can use us to point somebody to Christ and the cross. right here in Kokomo, Indiana. As we step out in boldness, and it takes some boldness, some courage, to share our testimony. We don't have to have all the answers. Answers are great. There are answers to be given to some questions. What God has done in your life and my life is what will penetrate the heart and point them to the cross. Through our prayers and our giving, God can move mountains. God can blaze new trails of ministry. God can go into a city like Auckland, secularized, where hopelessness and despondency is so prevalent, broken, shattered lives, through our prayers and our giving, people can be restored to Christ. And friends, as we reflect upon what Jesus shared in Luke 15 this morning, let me invite you to stand with me this morning. 
I want us, first of all, just to reflect upon the love of God. Can we do that? Can we just enjoy God's love for a minute? Allowing His Spirit to saturate our heart, our minds. And in this quiet moment, there may be some here, there may be some watching online. That at this point in time, you associate with that younger son in the condition of brokenness. Where everything around you is unraveled. Where you're empty-handed, you're lost, you're broken. Friend, can I tell you, all is not lost. But this morning, the Father is waiting with open arms for you to respond. Simply asking for forgiveness and placing your faith and trust in Christ, what He's done for you on the cross giving him your believing loyalty. God will restore you. And then for those of us who are part of the family, friends, the challenge we have is to surrender our hearts afresh to the work of the Holy Spirit that he might do his work of alignment so that our hearts might be in harmony with the Father's. Because while there is one, the reality is the work is not done, and we know that there, is far, there are far more than one. The multitudes around us that are broken and lost. And this morning, friends, I want to challenge us that we might step out with greater boldness. That we might be challenged to pray with greater fervency. We might be challenged to give with greater generosity to the work of the kingdom here and around the globe. And as the worship team leads us in that song, again, that we sang during our worship time, I Speak Jesus, I want us to sing this song as a declaration, as a prayer, as a call that God would work in our community, that God would use us that he would bring to those, those around us to our thoughts and our minds that he wants to use us to share his love to personally. And let's just sing this song together as a prayer that greater days ahead of God will use us for the work of the kingdom.